We're going to spend some time studying the Bible together now. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Titus. We're continuing our series called Church is Not What You Think. As we're looking at the book of Titus, we're asking Jesus to lead us into who are we supposed to be as God's church. We've all grown up seeing bad examples, church done badly. Uh, Some of us have uh, seen it from a distance. Some of us have seen it up close. And so we're asking the question, God, what would you have for us? What kind of community are you calling us to be here? Uh, This week, as we go into chapter two, we're calling it Rebuild Healthy Community. Rebuild Healthy Community. So if you have a Bible, turn to Titus 2. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the black Bibles that you'll see under the chair, and you could turn to page 999, page 999, Titus chapter 2. There's a movie that my daughter and I watched about a year ago, I think, and it's called A Quiet Place. Have y'all seen this movie, A Quiet Place? Here's the thing. We were told um, that it wasn't that scary, and we were told it was kind of like family-oriented, which I guess it's family-oriented, but man, it's scary. It's like way scary. The whole time we were watching that movie, we were both like, like, you know, like curling up and jumping on the couch and totally freaked out, and we were both kind of mad at my son-in-law afterwards, because I think he's the one that told us it wasn't that scary. Um, But I share that story because there are a lot of scary movies out these days, Um, monster movies like A Quiet Place, or the whole zombie theme. And there's a lot of these movies where they're scary movies about a family or a group of people trying to do life in the midst of chaos and threat. And that's a strong theme in our culture because it metaphorically speaks to the world we actually live in, right? For all people living after the Garden of Eden, that's where we live. Like, how do we, like, how do we have a healthy family? How do we build a healthy church? How do we build a healthy city with the monsters and uh, the threats and all these things coming against us? So in Titus, that's the kind of instruction that Paul's laying out. He's like, yeah, there are real threats. There are real problems. There are real monsters coming after you of sin and selfishness and greed and human corruption. And so because of that, here's how you should proceed. Here's how you should proceed. So we should have a sense of urgency, right? We should have a sense of honesty. This is hard work to rebuild families. It's hard work to rebuild churches. It's hard work to rebuild cities. But we should also have a sense of hope that Jesus has come for us and he said, this is my plan for you and we're going to do this. I'm going to help you do this. And here's some instructions on how to do it. So let's read Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So this is being taught in contrast to what was just taught last week, that there are going to be false teachers that are going to draw people away in two different directions, the two habits of our sin, One sin habit is to say, the zombies are out there, the world is scary, so I'm just going to get drunk, or I'm just going to feel good, or I'm just going to get another boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm just going to watch TV for six hours, whatever it may be, I just got to feel better because this world is too scary. That's one way that our flesh goes in the midst of a scary world. Another direction that our flesh goes, and we talked about this last week, he says, especially the circumcision party, you got to watch out for those religious people. Our flesh goes towards religious systems. And we say, you know what? If I find the right system, then I won't be vulnerable anymore. I won't be so afraid. I won't have to depend on Jesus. I can fix this myself through hard work and effort and religiosity. Paul says those are the two false directions to go in, but there's Only one way that we can go to rebuild community, to rebuild our lives that will actually work, and that's to trust Jesus. 
and then to live in accordance with what he tells us. And that's what he's calling us to here. I was listening to a podcast the other day. Uh, one of my favorite new podcasts, uh, it's kind of a cultural critique podcast by a couple of pastors. It's called This Cultural Moment. Um, and one of the guys was speaking, actually, I think on another show. But anyway, I was hearing this pastor speak, and he was saying, we all have this temptation to think that there's going to be this system out there that we can find that precludes sin, right? Or precludes our need for Jesus. We're all longing for that, right? Instead, Jesus says, don't look for the perfect system. Just come to me. Just come to me. That's what he's inviting us to. Um, so I'm going to pray that he would meet us here this morning. I'm going to pray that he would help us to see what he has for us and to draw us deeper into himself. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us. And we see that most clearly in the cross. We, we see that you came for us, that you died for us, that you rose from the dead. But Lord, you know, we drift in the day to day and we struggle and as we go out there and, and try to rebuild our families and our cities and try to be faithful at work, um, it's discouraging. And so God, will you, will you encourage us this morning? Father, I pray for those of us that are, that are drifting towards just cynicism, just questioning if there's any hope. Will you give us hope? Will, you, will your spirit meet us here this morning? Give us open minds to your word. Give us hopefulness to see what you're doing. God, for those of us that might be overconfident in our zealousness that we've got it all figured out, will you give us humility? Will you help us to hear from you, to learn from you, and to be shaped by you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he's talking about rebuilding a healthy community. He's, he's talking specifically, again, we've said this is the pastoral epistles. This is the shepherding the church letters series in the New Testament. So you've got first, second Timothy, and then also Titus. These are all about like how the church should run. So a lot of this is about church. You know, we saw in chapter one, church leadership and a lot of emphasis on that. But what you'll notice here is as he's talking about church leadership and how a church should run, he starts talking about families and intergenerational relationships, right? So it's all connected. Uh, you can't sit back and kind of look and hope and shop for the perfect church out there, right? Like, as soon as you go to the perfect church, you've ruined it, right? Have you ever heard that one before? Um, the call is for us to be the church, right? The call is for us to be what God calls us to be. So that's what these texts are about. And he gives us some pretty simple instructions. Some of it's going to be controversial. I, I read the text already, so probably some of you, if you're in modern people, kind of uh, winced when I read some of those texts because some of it grates against us culturally. First thing we're going to see is that we should found this new community on healthy teaching. So we should found it like foundation, build from, found it on healthy teaching. Second thing that we should see is that we're going to practice healthy roles. Practice healthy roles. God gives us roles to play and we are to practice within the roles he gives us. Again, that's, that's probably the most controversial part of this whole thing. Because as modern 21st century Americans, we believe we get to be whatever we want to be, which has never really worked in the history of civilization, but we believe that, right? We're going to beat the odds. So practice healthy roles. And then finally, model for healthy scrutiny. That's the last thing we'll see as he kind of focuses in on Titus himself, but it's a larger principle for all Christians. Model for healthy scrutiny. Know that you're going to be tested and scrutinized. So build a model that can withstand that. So first of all, found on healthy teaching. We should found this new community on healthy teaching. And this applies to families and to churches, okay? So if you're trying to build a family, if you're trying to build even a healthy team at work, if you're trying to build a church, if you're trying to lead a city, we should found these things on healthy teaching. Titus 2, 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It's a contrast, but as for you, right? And that but as for you, is pointing back to the other thing that came before it, right? So before he's got these false teachers that are going to say, hey, do whatever you want or follow this religious system. And he's like, no, as for you, you build on healthy teaching, sound doctrine. I quizzed the earlier service. Does doctrine sound like a stodgy old-fashioned word to any of you? Yes, some of you? It does to me. Maybe that'll encourage more people to be honest. Everybody was like, no, not me, Dave. So I'm stupid and out of touch. But anyway, to me, the word doctrine, in our lingo, maybe it's just an 80s problem, it has this vibe of like old-fashioned and rigid, right? The Greek word is just teaching. So doctrine can be good or bad. It can be healthy or unhealthy, right? And we talked about this. The Pharisees, the Bible teachers of the first century in Judea, Jesus kept fighting with them because they were teaching the Bible, but they weren't teaching in a way that pointed to God's grace. 
And so Titus is saying here, yeah, don't fall for that legalism and don't fall for that license, but teach healthy teaching. Teach gospel-centered, Jesus-centered exposition of the word. So the goal when we teach the word, and my goal for you as you read the word, is that you would read it looking for a vision of how good Jesus is. That you would be seeking awe at how good God is not just seeking information. We have to be very careful because we live in an information age. We live in a very scientific age. We don't want to be anti-science, but just recognize that we kind of lean that way in a hard way where we, we just think, I'll just collect data points, right? I'm just going to memorize facts and I'm just going to know the books of the Bible and I'm going to know the places and I'm going to know the names. But what I want you to seek is, is reading the word, teaching, doctrine for the sake of this healthy awe. This amazement, worship, you might say. Just having your mind blown at how good Jesus is. Allowing him to capture your heart and recapture your heart. One of my favorite Puritan illustrations is the expulsive power of a new affection. And in that illustration, the idea is, as Jesus captures your heart, then those other things you've been addicted to lose their grip, Right? It's, it's not like you just don't like chocolate anymore. Right? It's not like you just don't like maybe these things, these temptations. It's not like they just all of a sudden lose all power whatsoever, but they're, they're loosening their grip on you because more and more Jesus is seen as better. There's more and more awe, more and more desire to follow him. So when we start following Jesus, we don't like automatically do everything perfect and never make a mistake, but we're just growing in our amazement at who he is. And so our church is a church of, of pilgrims, passers-by, journeying people, right? We, we're in a city that is a very transient city. So many of you, if not the majority of you, will be looking for a new church soon. And so when you go look for a church, don't make the, the lights and the carpet and the bricks and the, you know, the external things the number one thing you're looking for, but look for healthy teaching, Jesus-centered Teaching. Do you want them to teach the Bible? Yes, but that's not enough. You want a place that, that worships Jesus, that is amazed by what Jesus has done for us. And that's what's going to help us grow. That's what's actually, he's saying here, going to produce the new community. It's only on that foundation that then you can start building on everything else, right? Because when you start trying to change your life and start trying to get your house in order, so to speak, and start trying to straighten things out, if you're straightening it out, thinking that only if I straighten this out, then God will love me. That's going to make everything all, I think the word is wompy-jawed. I, I got this clarified this morning. I thought it was whopper-jawed, but it's wompy-jawed. Okay, so crooked is the word for those of you that have never heard it before. It's going to make everything crooked and messed up in your life. If you're saying, well, if I straighten my life out, then God will love me. That's not the gospel. That's religion. And so what you have to build on is Jesus loves me. So now I'm going to trust him and start doing what he says. It's a completely different order, a completely different way of trying to rebuild our communities and our lives. And it, and it gives us a kind of freedom, a kind of sense of humor, an ability to kind of laugh at ourselves, to be more real about our struggles and our limps, because we know that our performance is not what earns his love and affection for us. Uh, so I grabbed a picture here of uh, Pier and Beam house. We lived in an 80-year-old house before we moved to the Harker Heights Colleen area. We used to work for a church in Temple, had an old historic home there. We were remodeling it, which is not a good idea for somebody that's not good at remodeling, but we did it anyway. And when we would try to remodel uh, certain doors and rooms and walls, I would run into this problem because the foundation was crooked. Um, you could put a marble on the floor in this old 1918 bungalow and the marble would just kind of roll all weird, right? It would kind of go this way and then it would hit another wave and kind of come back this way. And the whole floor, I'm exaggerating, but not too much, was kind of like this, right? Like it was all uneven. And so we had to get the foundation fixed before we could fix anything else. We tried, and it didn't work. And that might be where some of you are. You're like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to fix the doors and windows, and they're cracking and shifting, and everything's messed up. Well, you've got to get the foundation right. So Jesus uses this image of himself as the foundation in Matthew 7, right? He's like, don't build your house on the sand. Build your house on the rock. When the, when the storm comes, then you've got something solid underneath. So we had a pier and beam house. 
Um, and it was like this kit bungalow. I think you could order houses from Sears in the 19-teens, and they would just set the lumber in your front yard. It was a do-it-yourself kit, plop it together, and for whatever reason, the guy that built our house, he put cedar posts underneath the foundation of the house, and those cedar posts were just sitting on dirt. And so black clay and East Bell County is like sponge, and it's great for growing crops, but it's not good for foundations. And when the rain comes, it swells, and so the house moves up. And then when the drought comes, which will come in central Texas, it all gets dry, and there are big cracks and crevices. And we had cedar posts under our house that were literally just fallen down because the gap had gotten so big, it just kind of went bloop. And so the whole floor is all crazy, wompy jawed. And so this picture shows you got to put these heavy concrete piers. We brought someone in to help us to jack it up, to even it out. you got to put these solid concrete piers underneath the posts so the posts are not just in the dirt, but they're on rock, on something solid. Use all that to point out, again, this idea that we've got to build on the solid foundation of this healthy teaching of who Jesus is. And if you got that straight, then everything's settled. You have peace with God. You have joy. God loves you. Everything's going to be fine. And then you can just proceed from there. And so Ephesians 2 talks about it as the foundation of the church is what the apostles and prophets have taught and then clarifies, and the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself, right? Not just enough to, to teach verses from this book, but we got to teach it as Jesus, the cornerstone. He's the one that holds it all together. So At our church, we've made this central to what we do, right? Organizationally, this is really important. You can't be an elder or a pastor at our church. You can't be a Sunday school teacher unless this is your passion, this is your desire to make Jesus central and teach from his word. So organizationally, it's foundational for us as an organization. But the question is, in your own life, how are you doing it? When you get up in the morning, is the first thing you do to check your to-do list and say to yourself, like, what do I have to do today to be okay? I think that's a habit a lot. I even slip into that habit sometimes. Instead, what I would offer is we need to, to start our day with Jesus. You are what makes me okay. And I'm going to do my to-do list out of the overflow of your goodness to me and your grace to me. And we can do that in different ways, right? That can just be a prayer conversation you can have with Jesus right out of the gate. Could be just spending time in the Word. Some of you that are more studious, you spend you know, your two hours reading your Bible and praying good on you but make sure that you take some time to found your day on the healthy teaching of remembering who Jesus is. Make that a habit. That might be remembering a favorite verse and reciting it back to Jesus. It might be remembering a favorite hymn or praise song where you're telling back to him what he's already told to you, that he loves you and he's pleased with you in Christ. But you've got to find a way to make that a practice, right? Don't turn it into some kind of legalistic rhythm that's going to make the rest of your day okay because you did the right thing, right? You're just, you're just reminding yourself of the truth of what he's done for you. And you want to found your day on that reality. I would also say, don't give up on the public gathering of God's people, right? In Hebrews 10, 24, it says, don't give up as some are in the habit of doing, but gather together, fellowship together, encourage one another. Um, we talk about gathering and worship is like one of our first steps of growing in our faith. That's an important thing. I just want to continue to promote that. Obviously, y'all are the ones that already, you're here, right? So I'm preaching to the choir right now, but just recognize that more and more in our culture, it is weird, okay? It's weird to go to church. Statistically, I've been reading and studying some stats on how it's weird for committed Christians to go to church more and more, right? Like back in the old days, if you were committed to church, you went every week. But now if you're committed to church, you go like twice a month. I don't know, you tell me. I would just say, remember, this is a good, this is a healthy thing for us. Like, we should be desperate. We should be hungry. We should want more of Jesus, right? We, would want it, we should want to sing back to him who he is, want to be encouraged in communion and encouraged in the seeing other saints and hearing the word taught. Like we want, to, we want to gather around this healthy foundation of Jesus is my only hope. And that's an important dynamic in our personal lives, but also corporately. We want to make that central to who we are. And remember, just more and more in our culture, it's going to just get crazier and crazier, right? It's going to get weirder and weirder that we would be the kind of people that do the kind of things that we're doing, you know, gathering our lives, centering our lives, founding our lives on his goodness. 
So build your life, found your life on healthy teaching. The next thing we see is that we should practice healthy roles. We should practice healthy roles. Uh, one of my friends, a, a church that we helped to plant on the west side of Fort Hood, Kyle Black, said this, the call to be self-controlled and submissive is a call to be counter to the culture. We are told to be self-expressive rather than self-controlled and to dominate aspects of our lives instead of submitting to a higher authority. So Kyle and I, we're preaching through the same text, so we're looking at this together. He's like, man, both of these, the idea of submission goes against our call to be dominant in whatever we're called to. And then the idea of being self-controlled goes against our cultural drumbeat of self-expression. We're obsessed with self-expression. We're obsessed with this idea that we can choose who we are going to be. Acts chapter 17, Paul says that God determines when you're going to live, where you're going to live, who you're going to be. And I know this sounds old-fashioned and curmudgeonly on my part, um, but our culture is getting weirder and weirder in this area. Our culture is saying there are no limits and there should be no limits on who I can be. But there's some kind of like basic equipment we're issued at birth and just by the limitations of the culture we grow up in, right? Like we're just handed some stuff. And he says, go and love me and love people with the equipment I've given you. Think of the cereal aisle. This is a great analogy, I think. Um, when you go to buy cereal, we have so thousands and thousands of choices. And that's just, that's just a, an image of how we think about the self. We think that we've got thousands and thousands of endless choices and we get to pick for our own happiness, for our own glory, right? But that is not, that's not the actual universe we live in. Again, I don't, you know me, I don't want to be the old-fashioned curmudgeon guy, but I'm just telling you, that's not the universe that we currently live in. We have choices. We have limitations put on us. And Christians say, man, maybe I wish I wasn't here or there. I wish I wasn't this tall or this short, or I wish I wasn't this smart or this dumb, right? Um, I wish maybe I didn't have the limitations I had, but I see in the preaching of the gospel that God is good and he loves me and he's gracious. So I'm going to trust that there's some other reason I don't fully understand and I'm going to run in the lane that he's put me in. I'm going to glorify him with, with what I've been given. And that's the call. So that's all this crazy stuff we're about to hear about stages of life and gender that all fits into this category, okay? God has a plan for you. And it's not, he doesn't, you get to, you get to make some choices, right? I joked, I'm wearing my barbecue socks today. Happy choice. I was excited about putting them on. I was like, great, the red, we'll go with my red shirt. This is so fun. But then there are other choices I don't get to make, Right? Like, I don't, I don't get to choose everything. When I was a kid and a teenager, I really wanted to be either an NFL running back or a rock star. And there are certain kind of physical realities <laughs> that make both of those things impossible, okay? And so you've got to say, okay, God, what do you, what do you have for me? We get to make some choices, but, but he, kind of, he gives us a lane to run in, and that's what Paul is focusing on here. Uh, one more thing. I'm going to throw this out, and then we'll look at the text. How am I doing? I went kind of late. Oh, I forgot to turn on my timer. Whoops. Oh, no, it's on the other page. Okay. Um, I know there's no Bible verse about how long a sermon should be, but every week I watch you guys start to fall asleep at a certain time, so that's why I hurry, okay? Um, so where was I? Oh, yeah. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul blesses singleness. We have a ton of singles in our community. I just want to make sure that's clear. Like the Bible says singleness is awesome, good, and beautiful. I just want to be clear about that. The Bible is ultimately very clear about that. All the stuff we do about talking about fixing the families, because our families are so broken. We need a lot of work, right? But we don't want to confuse that with like family idolatry, where we make the, the picket fence and the 2.5 children and, you know, this kind of minivan soccer mom vision is like what God calls us all to. No, it's not, Okay. God calls us all to separate things. So we just want to be clear because here he's, he's a little more family-oriented in our text. So if you're in a family, you better do it well to God's glory, right? But he blesses singleness. It's, we all have different callings. So I just want to clarify that, 1 Corinthians 7. So verse 2, now we're looking at our text. Chapter 2, verse 2. 
He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So he starts with the older men. The Bible has this uh, old-fashioned, weird concept that men should lead. And what I want to ask you to think about and to imagine is, is the real problem in our world that men lead, or is it that men lead badly? What's really the problem in our universe? And I would argue that really the big problem is men leading badly. Second to that is men not leading at all. But if we were to actually do this, if we were to be Jesus-like leaders, where we wash people's feet and we were willing to die for others, then I think many more feminists would be all in with male leadership. It's like, oh, self-sacrificing, foot-washing leadership? All right, I'm, I'm on board. Let's do it. And so what I want to say to you is, I recognize that this is not cool and old-fashioned and weird. And I just want to affirm, man, we love you. We're glad you're here. We're not going to try to convince you of all this in one day. Uh, you don't have to agree with everything we think to go to this church. There's some freedom there, right? But I just want to say the, the vision is not male dominance. The vision is male servant leadership. And he starts here with the older men. He says, be sober-minded, right? Don't check out. Be sober. Be dignified, Right? Men desperately want to be respected. Ladies, if you didn't know that, we want to be respected, okay? But he's saying, men, be respectable. That's a good place to start. Take the lead. He says, be dignified, be self-controlled. He's going to keep coming back to this idea of being self-controlled. Be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So that word sound, again, means healthy and life-giving. So have a healthy faith. It's rooted in Jesus. It's founded on him. Have a healthy love. You consider others better than yourselves because Christ first loved us. We love others, 1 John 4, 19. And then be also sound or healthy in your steadfastness. One of my favorite image words from the New Testament, steadfastness and endurance and perseverance. Typically in English translations, go back to this Greek word, hupomeno, which is to, to dig in, to like dig into where you're standing. And so it conjures up Roman battle. Um, I used to play football. If you play other sports, you, you would often wear cleats, right? And so the cleats are to allow you to dig into the ground to take the leverage and the strength of the foundation that you're standing on and to make it your own. So there's an endurance where it's not about how strong you are. It's about how well you're digging into the foundation, which is Jesus himself. So saying men lead in these areas. Trust in Jesus, not in yourself, not in your own Strength, don't check out, but keep going. And then he starts picking on the older women. Verse three, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. So likewise, meaning, yeah, older women, same way. All these things that he's just commanded older men, but he's gonna give specifics now. There's gender difference in the Bible. Again, I know we're not supposed to believe in that, but the Bible does. And so he says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. So that term is uh, literally like be a priestess, so that like when people see the older women of the church, they should be seen as these priestesses in the household of God. New Testament is clear in First Peter that we are all, every member of the church is a kind of priest. We all rep represent um, God to the people in our community. And so here he's, he's using that image specifically like older women, this is kind of a goal for you to have this kind of priestly, dignified, holy behavior. And then he gets more specific and he says, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So already, he already told the older women or the older men to be uh, sober, right? And here he's saying again, in different words, the older women, don't just check out. Uh, the Bible's pretty clear. It's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to be drunk, right? That's generally the category. I'm sure it can be more complicated than that, but that's the simplest way to say it, right? Um, moderation is fine. Using things for the glory of God is fine, but don't check out. Like, don't numb yourself. Stay in the game. God has a, a role for you to play. And he says, don't be slanderers. Don't be slanderers. Throughout the New Testament, women are challenged not to be slanderers or gossips. And so why this is said is not so much about the sin of women and the sin of men, but the Bible acknowledges the strengths of men and the strengths of women. So again, I know this is not popular, but um, 
Testosterone and estrogen, on average, makes men different than women, right? Just generally. And there are a lot of statistic differences, right, that can, that can be different from person to person, right? Like some of us are outside the norm. So there's maybe a woman in here that can bench press more than me. But most of you can't, right? And I'm a skinny dude, right? So there's just this like muscular strength that the average man has that's more than the average woman, right? And again, some people fall outside the averages, but generally men are more physically strong and generally women are more verbally strong. Been all kinds of tests on this. Again, it's not all the time, but like if you're married, you kind of know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> like, how is your day, honey? Fine. How is your day? And then there are more words, right? <laughs> and so given that difference, right, there are strengths that, that men and women have. I have a, a friend who will remain nameless, but he was in a Starbucks uh, and a hobo walked in and like punched somebody out of the blue. Um, and so he stands up, he's a man, he stands up, right, starts, you know, moving his chest into harm's way, but he can't think of anything to say, and he's not really sure what he's going to do, he's just moving towards the danger, right? But then there was like a lady at the counter that started, you know, screaming and yelling about three pages worth of dialogue, <laughs> and the hobo ran out of the store, Right? And that's that forever, that image is forever burned in my brain. Like, yeah, the different strengths of men and women, right? <laughs> and my friend had some muscles. He's like, I guess I'm gonna have to move my muscles and, you know, use them. <laughs> and she was using her words and we have, we have different strengths, right? So again, some of you are different. We're, some of us are off, you know, we're different. Like I, I probably talk more than most men, right? So I'm not the average man in that way. Um, but we are to use our gifts for God's glory, so, so don't let this be like, oh, it's so barbaric and old-fashioned. Like, no, the, there are differences in the way we're wired. And Paul is saying, however you're wired, whatever your gifts are, if you're the strongest person in the room or the weakest person, if you're the smartest or the slowest or the fastest, whatever you are, you use those for God's glory. In, in the service of Jesus and those around you. So he's going to keep going. And he's going to say, not just should they not be slanders and not slaves to much wine, but they are to teach what is good. So the older women are to teach what is good. And this word in Greek can kind of have the connotation of, of beautiful, you know, like the true, the good, and the beautiful kind of classical ideals. And so teach what is beautiful, right? Teach the beautiful life. Again, we're practicing in our healthy roles the way life should be. We're trying to live this out. In a world of zombies and monsters, we're trying to live the good life and show others what it is. And he says specifically that you are to teach the younger women, so train, verse four, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So again, hard stuff, stuff we don't like, gender um, specific things here that are a little confusing. So I just want to lay out a general paradigm. I want to say, yes, obey what the text says. Then I want to kind of lay out for you a general paradigm of how the New Testament paints the differences between men and women. Men are repeatedly commanded. Ephesians 5 is the best summary of this. But men are repeatedly commanded to sacrificially love their wives. Going back to that theme again. Again and again throughout the New Testament, men are commanded to love their wives, to serve them, to sacrifice for them. The Greek word agape. Have y'all ever heard the word agape? There's like four or five different Greek words for love and affection. Um, and so some teachers, there's a guy that wrote a book called Love and Respect. He's pointed this out. It's the first time I ever heard this. He said, women are never commanded to love their husbands. Can you believe that? Like nowhere in the New Testament. And you're thinking, well, Dave, I think we just saw a verse right here, right? It says the older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Well, that's actually this other Greek word, phileo, right? Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. So to translate that word would be like, like your husbands, okay? That's all we ask, just like your husbands. <laughs> I, I think also, now I'm not a linguistic scholar. I did study Greek for like five years. I would say you could translate it as think your husband is cool, okay? <laughs> And that fits under the heading of all the other commands. So all the other commands for women are esteem your husband, respect 
your husband, submit to your husband. So it's like a different call again. The Bible says genders are different. It, it, the Bible doesn't promote radical egalitarianism in the sense that there are no distinctions, but it also doesn't, it doesn't promote old-fashioned patriarchal domination, right? It's this weird middle where it says men and women really are different. And men really are called to lead, but it's supposed to be this sacrificial, empowering, beautiful thing whether women are loved or, and cared for and using fully their gifts. And women really are called here to submit to their husbands. Now, I want to put that in, it's kind of a military term, submission. It's hupo tasso. It's uh, under the tactics, tasso, the tactics of him. So you're, you're helping him execute his tactics, right? Like he's got a lane to run in going back to God gives us roles and the wife's job is to help her husband run his race well. So back in Genesis, in the Hebrew, where it says that Eve was made to be a helper for Adam, helper is, is not like a half-wit servant, right? The word helper is used repeatedly. Hebrew word ezer is used repeatedly for God. God is your mighty warrior helper. Proverbs 31, the noble wife, that, that word noble can be like valiant warrior, right? So it's not demeaning women. It's a role, it's like there's a strategic role. It doesn't mean that men are smarter. It doesn't mean that men are better, right? It's just like we have different roles that we're called to run in. And all that fits under the heading. Again, Ephesians 5 sets up this contrast really beautifully when it talks about marriage. But right before Paul goes off in Ephesians 5 on marriage, in Ephesians 5.21, he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's not like this special thing that women are called to, that men are never called. We're all called to that, Right? To live in community is to acknowledge the personhood and the independence of other people made in the image of God, and it's going to require all of us to submit to one another, to look at the other and go, man, you've got something special, and I need to learn from you and hear from you and see what God is doing in your life. So it's this whole sea, this whole culture of submitting. So while we would acknowledge some of what is called traditional roles, we are not advocating for traditionalism, right? So we want to just... We want to make that case that don't swing off to one hard side or the other, but kind of like try to, try to stick in the middle and say, this is, this is more complicated than I thought, and only by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit will we actually be able to pull this off, right? Because our flesh is going to pull us in one way or the other. So there's this call in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where he says, I'm making humanity in our likeness, God is talking about the likeness that we're made. We're made in his image is another way of saying that. And we are to magnify his image in the world. And then he says, specifically, I made them male and female. And that's part of how I want it to work. I've done that on purpose. And so both male and female are the image of God. And they're both to use uh, the image of God and to magnify that in the world. For some reason, I was thinking of a mime. I don't know why, because everybody, I think everybody hates mimes, right? Um, <laughs> But what I got going in my head is it's like our job to point to the invisible God, right? And so mimes have this particular gift of like pretending something's there that's not there, right? So that makes it a bad illustration. I should just throw it out. Forget it. The idea is don't be an annoying, weird French mime. But the idea is that you're trying to point people to something that they don't yet see, right? You're trying to point them to something that they don't yet see. And that is a God who is good a God who is righteous, a God who forgives us and who loves us in Jesus. As we live out our roles and we stop being bitter about what we've been given, right? But as we live that role out for the glory of God, not saying I can be whoever I want to be. No, you can't. You can't be whoever you want to be. You can do a lot. We live in one of the richest, freest countries in the world. So yes, more than other human beings in earth at this time, yeah, you get to be more than most people do. You have a lot more freedom than most human beings have. But, uh, but it's not ultimate freedom, right? Like we've got some basic equipment we've been given. Are we gonna use it for God's glory? Are we gonna like rail at him that life is so unfair? We have to see God as gracious and good and he loves us. So in this section of all these commands, all these things that we're supposed to do differently, then he ends with the younger men, right? He ends with the younger men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And a lot of you are probably thinking, why does he pick on the young men the least? Because it seems like they need the most work, right? Isn't that what you're thinking? I know I was thinking that. 
And what I would say is he's got these likewises and this kind of cascade that's going throughout the whole text, right? So like everything applies to everybody, right? These are general moral standards that apply to everybody, but also young men with the, that raging testosterone and those, those muscles you haven't really figured out how to use yet. Like if you could use or learn a Jesus-centered self-control, then everything else is going to take care of itself. You're going to be fine. So I think this is just like, you know, young men have a hard time paying attention, right? Pay attention. But he just says, trust Jesus, be self-controlled. Everything else is going to work out. Okay? Everything else will work out from there. So this is this vision of how the church should live together. Different generations encouraging one another, the older to the younger. We all have roles to play. We can't be whoever we're called to be, but in all of it, there's this mutual submission. It's not so much about self-expression, you know, let me find myself and be myself and show myself, but serving others in love. And we all have different roles to play. One of my favorite cross-references for this is 1 Thessalonians 4.11. This says, to aspire to live quietly. It's translated differently in different languages, but the word aspiration has this kind of like big ambition context, right? And so he's saying, have this big dream, this big vision. And what's your big vision and dream to be? To live a quiet, humble life, to trust that Jesus is good and to love other people. It's just this beautiful tension that we live in, in the New Testament. So where can we live this out? Obviously in our natural relationships, he talks a lot about family already. I think it's also helpful to think about our vocation, right? Like at work, there are older and younger and more experienced and less experienced where you can mentor and encourage one another and live out these roles. Um, Also in service clubs, some of you coach, some of you have certain gifts, right? Like whether it be carpentry or gardening, and you can use those as fields of play on which to mentor other people. The things that you have in common, the places where you meet up with other human beings and then live out these roles and practice them for the glory of God so that we're passing on health instead of passing on the zombie culture of chaos and piracy that Crete and, frankly, Colleen can be known for. So the last point is that we are to model for healthy scrutiny. Model for healthy scrutiny. Uh, So let's look at the text in verse 7 through 8. It says in verse 7, for an overseer, nope, that's the wrong chapter. Chapter 2, verse 7, show yourself, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. A reflection of 1 Peter 3. It says similar stuff in 1 Peter 3, like be ready to have an answer for the hope that's within you. And then when you live in this dignified way, when you live in this way that is coherent, where the model of what you're doing matches the speech of what you're saying, then the people that accuse you will be put to shame. Because here's the thing, people are going to accuse you. People are going to scrutinize your life. People are going to kick the tires of your life. So at one level, there's been a lot of talk in Titus about the leadership. James says that if you, if you want to be a teacher, then you're going to be under a stricter judgment, right? And so there's this general thing of like, if we're pastors and elders of the church, we're more visible. It's, it's more right and good that you would see us and scrutinize and watch the model here. He's talking to a church leader, Titus. But what I want you to see is in 1 Peter, he's saying that's, that's true for all Christians though as well. Like, this is also on you. I, I accept the responsibility as a leader that, yeah, there's, there's some of this that might be greater than some of you. I might have more people kicking the tires of my life and inspecting me and, and watching me than you might have. But for some of you, you might have more than I do, right? And in 1 Peter 3, he says, all of us will have people looking and scrutinizing the model of our life. Are we living out the model of what we say we believe? That's what he's challenging Titus to here. Matthew 5, he says it this way, let your light shine before men so they will see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven, right? This comes up in a lot of other places of scripture as well, but there's this idea that we would live out a model of life that points to Jesus and not to ourselves, not to how awesome we are, but it's coherent with what we believe about Jesus. Now, here's one of the great things about this is when you live in humility, you kind of take away some of the ammunition of those that would scrutinize and kick the tires of your life. So what this does not mean is, Live a perfect life with no flaws, right? That's the religious call. The religious call is be, be so perfect that there is nothing that ever goes wrong with you. 
Does God call us to perfection and holiness? Yes, he does. What I'm saying is don't get in your mind that I've got to never make a mistake. Otherwise, you know, people will be lost and they won't know Jesus. No, be honest about your mistakes and your neediness of Jesus. Be honest about that. Be real about that. A couple of weeks ago, the new Cybertruck was uh, unveiled by, what's this guy's name? Elon Musk. That's right. I always get the company name and then his name mixed up because they're both like crazy names that make no sense. So Tesla, Elon Musk, unveiled this new Cybertruck with bulletproof glass, y'all. Anybody watch that video? His designer comes out and like throws a ball, a metal ball at the glass and it just shatters. Very embarrassing moment, right? Because this was the moment when they were supposed to be kicking the tires, scrutinizing it, throwing stuff at the glass, and it was supposed to stand up, right? And so that's what he's calling Titus to. That's what Peter is calling all Christians to. That's what Jesus was calling us to in Matthew 5. He's like, you're going to have a life that's going to be scrutinized. It's going to be scrutinized. People are going to be throwing stuff at you. People are going to be kicking you. People are going to be slandering you. And just know that you have to have some reason to have hope in Jesus. That's the beauty of 1 Peter 3. It's this word that gives this, uh, this Greek word for defense. We get the idea of apologetics. Apologetics is having a reasoned defense for why we believe Jesus is true. But in 1 Peter 3, it's not just about having smart answers. It's about being persecuted and then saying, but I still have hope in Jesus. It's about being beat up and picked on, but saying, but I still have hope in Jesus. Is your life going to be that kind of life that endures suffering, that endures the hailstorm and the bullets hitting the glass of your life, but saying, you know what? Jesus is my only hope. So think about this way. Actions speak louder than words. The New Testament again and again, James has a big theme of this, says it's not enough to just say you love Jesus. You got to follow Jesus. Those things have to go together. And what I would argue is that if you truly love Jesus, it doesn't lead you to never make a mistake. It just leads you to keep following him. When you do make a mistake, you're like, man, I blew it. But Jesus loves me. And you start following him again. And you're moving in that trajectory, that direction. Um, Here's a way I would think about it. In your own life, he's pointing out to uh, Titus here as a leader to be a model for others. In your own life, what are ways in which maybe you've thought, I can produce more if I cut corners at home, right? Have you ever been tempted by that? This is a big temptation for for preachers, for leaders, um, that I would say, you know what? If I spend less time at home, I could spend more time on the church, and we could have a better church. We could have a better ministry, but but you know what, as I, as I steal from my family, I begin losing my credibility. This is the way I would think about it for you at work. Are there things that you're doing where you say, I can produce more at work, I can have a better platform if I don't give as much attention to these little things, right? Loving Jesus, praying, loving my family, being a good friend. You're not too important to be healthy. You're not too important to be healthy. None of us are. None of us are that important, right? Are there times when you got to work too many hours? Yeah. Are there times when you have to be out of town? Yeah. But when it's week after week, month after month, year after year, what you're starting to say is, I'm this important. The universe can't spin without me. Is that really what we want to be saying? I don't think so. We want to say, you know what? I can live healthy because Jesus is the savior of this world, not me. So I can live in a sustainable way. I can live in a healthy way. The way I used to say this for myself as a young pastor coming up with this temptation was if I've got the choice between being like a A pastor and a B family man or an A family man and a B pastor, I'm going to go with being a B pastor, right? Because I'm not sure how to work this all out. So I'm going to I'm going to default, I'm going to defer to my family because I've got to get that straight. If I don't get that straight, everything else I say is pointless. Now, in reality, I was probably a a C plus pastor and family man in a lot of ways, but that was like a little formula that helped me kind of keep that straight. So so I'd encourage you to pray about, to say, Lord, 
Search me and know me, right? Psalm 139. See if there's any offensive way in me. Will you, will you search me and know me? You already know me, Lord. Will you now show it to me? Help me to see ways in which I might be sliding and I might be saying the lure of being something great or doing something great or saying something loud and important is pulling me away from the kind of daily health that you've called me to. Be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Dallas Willard says it this way, hurry is the enemy of the spiritual life. I'm not completely sure if that's true, but it's a really good place to start. Hurry is the enemy of the spiritual life. I've been thinking about that a lot. I like to hurry. I like to go fast. So, as I said, I think at the beginning, listen to this guy interviewed the other day. said, we're all attracted to try to find the perfect system, right? Um, to try to find like the perfect family or the perfect family system or the perfect job or the perfect church so that we don't have to clean our own stuff up yet, right? Like we don't have to look at the junk in our own heart. We don't have to defend, depend on human beings anymore. A lot of us have been hurt by people. And because we've been hurt by people, we're swinging the other way, saying, I'm never going to do that again, so I'm going to go to this other system that maybe will fix everything. Later on in our chapter, in Titus 2, 11 through 12, he's going to say this, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled lives. We're going to be tempted to think that it's some system or it's our own strength, or it's our own flesh, or it's the right church, or the right family, or the right spouse, or another right spouse, you know, that's going to fix our life? He's like, no, the grace of God has appeared. That is what trains you to live well, and to be self-controlled, and to serve God's glory in the world. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your love to us in Christ. Your grace, your unmerited favor has appeared to us in Jesus. And God, we pray that you'd help us to build our community and our lives around you. Help us not to be self-willed, but to be self-controlled. Help us to not put our mission before yours, but to submit to you and your desire and your campaign in our lives. We thank you for your grace. Help us to live it out. We pray in Jesus.